We're going to look now at dark days of the Irish Civil War and the violence against women perpetrated during that conflict. An extraordinary letter written by a woman named Mary to the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, Dr Edward Joseph Byrne, reveals a lot about the difficult history of sexual violence during the war through the prism of one individual's experience. This letter is the subject of a short film on Manaw100.ie. It's called Mary M and Sexual Violence, Ordinary Voices and the Irish Civil War. It's presented by Professor Lindsay Erner Byrne, Professor of Gender History at University College Cork, who joins me now in studio. Lindsay, you're very welcome indeed uh, to the programme. Tell us, first of all, how did you come across this letter? I came across it in the mid-1990s when I was doing my PhD and I had the good fortune to be in what was then the Dublin Dasson Archives in Drumcondra, the Archbishop's Palace as it was known. And the archivist then was David Sheehy. And one afternoon he said to me, I said, I, we, I was doing research on motherhood and I said, I'd love to be able to hear what mothers thought of all of this. And he said, well, it's a long shot, but we have seven boxes of letters written by people from all over Ireland to the Archbishop between 1920 and 1940. And I said to him, I'll take the long shot. Can I have a look? And that was the next three years of my life going through or about 4,000 letters written by people from all over the country, although the greater were from Ireland, but you had letters from Australia, America, etc. Largely, they are what, what you know as charity cases. So largely, that's how they were labelled, begging letters. But there was everything in there, you know, from marital problems to issues to do with incest, but largely to do with making ends meet and trying to find employment. And among all of these, in one of the early boxes, was this very long letter, beautifully written. And I remember as soon as I picked it up, it looked different to all the others. So a lot of the others were pretty laconic and functional. I need this, the rent costs this, etc., etc. And here's this really long, very poetically written letter in beautiful joint handwriting and script. And I began reading it, I remember it on a Friday afternoon. And I put the letter down. I remember saying to David, who was the, the archivist, I think I've just read an account of a rape. And the reason why I say I think is because of the way in which she phrases it for our modern ears and, and mine at the time. I'd never come across any account of sexual assault of any kind at that point in, in, in the period of the 1920s. So I really wasn't au fait with the kind of language people might have used. So that's how I found it. And, and as I said, I didn't know what to do with it for a long time. I knew it was really special and one had to be really careful um, with what I did with it. So I was, it was another 10 years before I actually figured out what it is I felt I could or, you know, the sort of story I felt I could tell mm. about it that respected it and its integrity and, and so on. So who was Mary M? Mary M was just any woman, really. And that's what's quite particular about this case. She wasn't politically active. She was a single woman in her 40s when the attack happened in 1922-23, there in the period when I found the letter. And she was a carer for her aunt and uncle who were in their 70s, one blind. Her other siblings appear to have, at the time of the attack anyway, left Ireland. Or her sister may have married. I couldn't find her, change her surname, but the other siblings weren't in the country. So she, And she lived in rural Ireland on a farmstead. And as, as listeners might know, in the 1920s, a third of women didn't marry. And many of those women remained living in, in at home with relatives, aunts, uncles, parents, etc. That was very, very common. So her story until this point is really, you know, the story of many, many women in rural Ireland at the time. And the attack takes place in January 1923 in County Westmeath. Now, by January 1923, the conventional part of the civil war was pretty much over. We were in a period of guerrilla warfare, but there wouldn't have been 
very much if any fighting going on in the in the Midlands or the North Midlands at, mm-hmm. the, at that stage. So what what actually happened? Well, according to her account, and it does mirror the sort of random violence that was happening at the time in Gemma Clark and people like that have looked at everyday violence, have looked at these kind of raids on houses. So you had groups of men who were hiding out in the country and in need of supply and shelter, but you also had quite a lot of random criminality as well. And she identifies her tax as a gang of Republicans, or men calling themselves Republicans armed to their teeth. But they may have just been opportunist. We don't know. And But other than that, the attack mirrors ones that, that other women have recalled during both the War of Independence and the Civil War. That's what's quite interesting. The story doesn't really vary. They go into the house. They're looking for money. They can't find it. They drag her aunt out of her bed who's in her 70s and blind by the hair. And she intercedes to try and save her aunt. And the way she describes them is she said they were angry when they didn't get what they want. And one brute's duty passion overcame him. And I am now in a dangerous state of health. That's pretty much how she describes what is a gang rape. Mm. Um, and other than that, that's it. The letter itself is, is sort of eight pages long. The rape is given half a sentence. She does get pregnant, though. She gets pregnant, which is why she writes the letter. I think we would know about this. And this is what's kind of interesting from the perspective of these sources and the difficulty of, of writing this sort of history or even knowing about this kind of history. She becomes pregnant in an Ireland that we know was exceptionally hostile to women who had babies outside marriage. She is, I reckon, 42 at this point when she's pregnant. Now, I've got three different dates for her, which tells you, too, how slippery official documents are. I've, in her birth certificate in the two senses, there's three different days, but they all date her between 40 and 42, mm. three. So she's a middle-aged woman, effectively. And she's pregnant and she's a carer for these two um, elderly relatives. And she is in desperate a state of panic when she discovers. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine what she went through. She's not someone who appears to have had much of a network in the community. And it's not the community she turns to. It's, it's the church. Uh, when she needs assistance, which is interesting, I think. But she sees herself potentially as a subject of public shame. I think she even uses that kind of phraseology in the letter. She does, which is extraordinary. And I think it's hard for us to try and understand the sense of shame and the way in which victims of assault and rape internalised the kind of idea that they had been damaged in some way, morally compromised. And and for us, as modern readers, what's particularly kind of difficult, I suppose, to handle about this case is she is most terrified about this pregnancy being discovered. She gives very little time to her own trauma and, you know, any sense of wanting justice. She's not writing this letter to the Archbishop to get justice. She doesn't report this to the police. That's not in her frame of reference at all. Her problem is, I need to have this baby adopted. And she refers to herself as having fallen repeatedly in the letter. So she does, in a sense, nothing, there's no sense that she is a victim in the, mm. in, or in the way we would understand it. It's a huge sense of guilt, which huge is ridiculous. Huge sense of guilt, internalised, yeah, huge. And she does no sense that because her pregnancy was a result of rape, that that changes anything in relation to her moral position. So it kind of gives us a real sense of how difficult it would have been for a victim of rape to come forward and that the vast, vast majority, as is the case today, wouldn't have come forward if it weren't for this pregnancy, if it was for a pregnancy. Now, the story is compelling. You deliver the story brilliantly. And as you're going through the story, you're kind of wondering, OK, where, because you've no idea, where's this going? 
And then you begin to talk about uh, an agency, a rescue agency, uh, Cruces Rescue Agency in Dublin. And that becomes part of the story. And it would appear that Mary at some point thought, they're going to rescue my baby. They're also going to rescue me. But that's not how it turns out. Yeah. The other thing that was really extraordinary about this letter for me, because I was writing History of Motherhood when I found it, was it gave me one of the very rare maps of what does a woman who finds herself pregnant outside marriage with nowhere to go in 1923 do? And she maps it in the letter for the Archbishop because she tells him everything she's done to try and save herself and to save her her baby prior to writing and seeking his help. She leaves Westmeath. She goes to Dublin unaccompanied, not knowing where she's going to go. She's about, I reckon, four months pregnant when she does this. And she encounters an old lady on the street. And I imagine there was a lot of this. There were a lot of spiritual watchers on the streets of Dublin, Legion of Mar- Legionaries, Legion of Mary people, watching out for girls from the country who might be in trouble. So that was a kind of a rhetoric that you do find in a lot of those charity societies. And clearly she encountered one of these people who directed her to a rescue agency on South Anne Street in Dublin called the St. Patrick's Guild. And it was run by a single woman, Mary Josephine Cruz. And she would have dealt with about two to two and a half thousand letters and communications every year from women all over the country seeking assistance, pregnant, either wanting some help with uh, having the baby looked after or the baby adopted or to stay in residential in her one of her homes themselves. So she goes to Cruz, who she says initially was kindness itself to her. Cruz says, don't worry, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go back to Westmeath and just before you're due to deliver the baby, you're going to come back to Dublin, have that baby in Hollis Street we will then take the baby. And this is what Mary thinks is going to happen. She does what she's told and she does give birth to the baby in Hollis Street because I found those records. And the baby is then taken by Cruz into the rescue home to St. Patrick's Guild. But it's at that point, nine days after she gives birth, that she realises she's going to have to pay for this baby monthly. It's 25 shillings. So not only is she going to lose the baby, mm-hmm. a la Magdalene Laundries mm-hmm. and mother and baby homes, etc., etc., but she's going to have to pay for the privilege. She's going to have to pay for it and she's terrified. She has no income of her own. She's a main carer. So as she says to the Archbishop, at this terrible point, I had to start robbing from my aunt's blind pension and my uncle's old age pension. And she's very clear about her faith and what a devout Catholic it is. And she says, having to do this means that I have lost not just my son, but my faith. I can't call myself a Catholic when I rob from these people that I care for. And then she can't pay anymore. She can't put up with paying uh, this money and taking it from her aunt and uncle anymore. So she writes to Cruz and says, I can't. I cannot give you the 25 shillings this month. And Cruz says, fine, I'm going to show up with the baby on your doorstep. And it's at that point that she uh, goes to a, a Franciscan friar in Galway and asks for help. And he writes to the Archbishop a kind of a, and this is very common with all the letters written to the Archbishop in this collection, a priest will often write his version of the same story, mm. either vouching for the person who's writing or saying, you know, forget about it. And in this case, he vouches for her. He says, I have no doubt that this happened and that we must help this woman. And that's what's extraordinary. He doesn't question her account and the Archbishop doesn't. And just to say she's asking for £20 because she has to pay for the adoption of her baby. There aren't regularised adoption services and it is the mother that pays for the adoption of her baby at this time. £20 is, if you think about the pensions that were being given Mm. out by the state to women at the time whose husbands had died during the revolution, that was £90 a year. She was paying 20 for this adoption. We also see, I think, two sides, I suppose, of uh, Catholicism in 1923, the charitable and the judgmental. Mm. I think that was really important too, because faith is really important to Mary. 
Uh, it is both a source of comfort to her, but it's also the source, I suppose, from which her shame and her sense of morality comes from. But it's also the place that's going to give her salvation too. And much more importantly, in the moment for her, it's going to save her baby and save her social position because they pay her the £20. I think for us too, it shows the role that the Catholic Church and the various faiths, because the similar stories for the Protestant churches as well, played in tidying the moral face of Ireland. Because on one level, what the Archbishop does is a huge act of charity. But on another, it means that this really terrible system of placing this blame and shame on women and the separation of mothers and their children in these circumstances is just perpetuated. And because it's not brought above the surface, therefore there's no sense of what's happening. And women individually around the country, because there's no narrative about this happening, they don't have any framework for their personal experiences of abuse because there's no sense that it's happening to anybody else. Is there any sense of loss in this letter? Does it come across that, you know, I'm, I'm losing my child? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, And I had one of those moments, I mean, such a privilege, I'm so privileged to be a historian. And there are certain moments, as you will know, in the archives where you're really reminded of the humanity of what you're doing. And that was when, throughout her letter, she talks about how important faith is. And her expression of trauma is very interesting. She says, I can't find comfort in God. He's turned away from me and I can't understand why. It's really heartbreaking. And please give me my God and my faith back. I want to be able to go to confession and confess properly. So all of that's in the letter. But the moment for me was when I found her baby's birth certificate. And actually, I got so emotional. I, mean, I, I just sat down and I, I still this day it brings out goosebumps for me because she called her little baby boy after the, the, the Franciscan friar who had helped her. And the name is very unusual. I'm not going to give it now, but it's a sort of name, I believe, that if her little son had ever been able to find her, he would have. It was so unusual. Mm. The, and the first name. And, Mar- and also she calls him after the person who believed her and who helped her. And I think I really do feel that was at such an act of love, that name. Yeah. Um, so I think she doesn't even have pause for that trauma, but it's written all over the letter and it's written on her son's birth certificate. What does it tell us about sexual violence and rape during the Civil War? Because we don't really know who was responsible mm-hmm. for this. You know, was it criminals? Was it Republicans? Was it anti-treaty forces? We really, really don't know who it was. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. And one of the big problems on trying to write that history is how few sources we do have. We have about four to five documented ca- cases during the Civil War, one from each side, if you like, perpetuated mm-hmm. perpetuated on very different uh, sides, all sides. But we do know... And this is from court records. Yes. This is not, you, you're not going to get this kind of stuff in the Bureau of Military History. Well, actually, you are. One of, the right. cases, one of the cases is from the Bureau of Military History. One of the most violent and upsetting has okay. come to light from the Bureau of Military History. No, sorry, from the pensions, pensions application. Yes. Excuse yeah, me, pensions, sorry. Pensions, you might. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, you're, you're dead right. But from the pension applications, there is one of the most disturbing cases actually has come to light through there. But we, we know there are many, many, the vast majority we, we won't know about. What it tells us is that at this time, violence against women, in a sense, formed also part of the general chaos and violence. We don't have evidence that it was used as a strategy of war in that sense, but we have evidence that things like haircutting and abuse and, you know, gender specific violence was fairly routine throughout this period, you know, throughout the War of Independence and the Civil War. So there's a long period of disruption. And in this case, she has an acute sense that the attack is happening because she starts it during our country's time of terrible trouble. So she very much roots the attack as part of that period of violence and disruption. And interestingly, at the end of her letter, she says, 
help me and help all our Irish, our Irish girls. And she's linking it very much with a sense in the 20s that the Catholic Church and others had that the period of violence had been really damaging to the morality of the country. And it was very much focused on women's sexual morality. And you can see that she's very aware of that kind of narrative that's being imposed on the violence of the Civil War. One case can't tell us uh, everything, but it gives us a real sense of certain universal themes and then the uniqueness of individual experience. But a lot more research needs to be done on exactly the role that this kind of violence played in the Civil War. We're also joined on the line now by Dr Sinead McCool, the curator of Manaw100.ie, which is part of the Decade of Centenaries. Um, Sinead, on the basis of what Lindsay has been saying about the recorded incidents of sexual assault during the, the Civil War, can we assume, given a reluctance to report these kind of incidents, that, that there were many other rapes during the Civil War? I suppose I would be saying to you, Miles, that the that the research is really in some ways in its infancy. When you look at the list of source material that's on the website to accompany this article that uh, Lindsay has prepared and you look at it um, as a chronological development, you'll see that most of this work is coming out of the Decade of Centenaries programme. And I would say to you that, you know, we've been surprised at what has come to light in the Decade of Centenaries programme and perhaps as a result of this programme or other programmes, people may come forward again to talk about this. But we know it's a really difficult topic. And when um, the decision was made in as part of the, the women's programme under the, you know, Minister Martin's Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sports and Media, you know, a lot of thought went into, you know, examining this particular aspect of the the decade of centenaries and when Lindsay talks about it in the context of the time it's very important as historians to get that context to get that understanding and I think when we talk about it um, in terms the the term always at the time Miles was was outrageous and there's a document in UCD archives that talks about the earlier period and as sort of an assessment of violence against women. It's quite a scrappy document. There's a lot of notations on it. And it was prepared for propaganda purposes. We're in a different period in the the Civil War when we're talking about this period. What Lindsay has described is the sort of the breakdown in, you know, the legal system, the, the, you know, lack of a police force. It's a very different time. And that's why it was really important to contextualise it and to mark this moment at the moment of the event happening rather than a point when the letter is written or, you know, at a later stage. So it's very much this moment in the Irish Civil War and what does it tell us about the general, what Lindsay has so well described as lawlessness. One other point I just want to make in terms of it is we've got a very articulate woman. With Mm. every word she speaks, you our understanding, her situation, and to be able to articulate something this difficult in any time or any time frame, you have huge admiration for this woman in this very difficult situation in which she finds herself. And where I think we have is, is a mark of respect to the fact that she was able to explain her situation in this way and obviously was responded to by the people to whom she told her story. 
Finally, Lindsay, I get a sense uh, from you that you as an historian had a huge or felt a huge sense of responsibility mm-hmm. uh, towards Mary Ann, which some people might think unusual for, uh, you know, somebody who were reading something which was seven at the time you read it was more than 70 years in the past. Yeah, no, deeply. I, I knew I I knew I had to really be able to bring it to light properly and with respect. And one of the really important things agreed with the archive was not using the surname and obscuring the address. And if her first name had been any more unusual, I would have changed that too. And I changed the name of the friar. And so there's no, because I believe there's nothing served in that, but but there is something served in telling the story because I think it has some resonances to uh, right up to today. So yeah, I was keenly aware and it did take me years to feel able to do it properly and to do it justice. And I am grateful to Manoa 100 that they gave us this kind of masterclass format. The time, it's very unusual to get kind of 15 minutes to go deeply into one letter mm-hmm. in that format. So I think that was really important as well, that it was done properly. And, and, I, and I, I, hope, I hope people feel it has been. And I hope we've been respectful to her and to her story. Sinead makes a good point about articulacy. So she speaks for herself in this mm. piece and that was very important to us. Yeah, I mean, she's a very, obviously, very mm. well-educated woman. And as you say, she's incredibly uh, articulate. It is, it's a, a wonderful film. Uh, it's a very compelling short film focusing on this account of the trials and tribulations of Mary M. It's called Mary M and Sexual Violence, Ordinary Voices in the Irish Civil War. You can find it at manaw100.ie. My guests are Lindsay Erner-Byrne and Sinead McCool. Thank you both very much for joining us this evening. Thank you.